This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, everyone, time for a special edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here looking forward to talking about the state of the union of professional tennis at the moment because, as we just learned this week, the U.S. Open will take place in 2020. The dates, the same ones that are on the calendar, end of August into early September, USTA making the announcement along with uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Actually, it was Cuomo, the governor of New York State, that made the official announcement that the U.S. Open will happen but with no fans in uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. So a lot's been going on behind the scenes uh, for the last couple of months, really, as the USTA has tried to figure out a way to get this done. And now that the COVID-19 virus is, well, it certainly hasn't disappeared, but is certainly heading in the right direction here in the New York area where I am, by the way, I'm doing my podcast, continuing to do it from my basement here in Westchester, New York. I'm about a 12, 13 mile drive from the USTA National Tennis Center. Uh, It's a lot easier to get there recently, by the way, with the barely no traffic. So the U.S. Open will happen. A couple of issues uh, right in front of us. Obviously, we know that Roger Federer will not be playing. He's announced uh, about a week ago that he's had ongoing knee issues. So had to have another surgery, an arthroscopic knee surgery. So he'd already announced even prior to this announcement from the USDA that he will be skipping the rest of the season and he hopes to be ready and healthy in 2021. Now, the other top two male players, of course, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, both have made comments in the last couple of weeks, um, shedding a lot of uncertainty about their belief that um, holding the U.S. Open is is the right move, for obviously a a number of reasons. Number one, I believe the health and, and safety of everybody involved, uh, specifically the players and their entourages um, and people working at the event. Because even if there are no fans there, uh, there's still going to be people there working, including myself, if that happens as a commentator, not to mention, you know that ESPN, as the, the main entity that broadcasts the U.S. Open, of course, there are entities from all over the world, okay? There's over a 1,000 people that work just for ESPN broadcasting, and then there's hundreds of others that work for other networks from all over the world. There's what's called the world feed that essentially the USTA produces, which goes to countries that don't necessarily have a deal per se with the USTA. But ESPN being the host broadcaster spends by far the most money. So there's some um, word that maybe it'll only be ESPN on site uh, to try to limit the amount of people on site. But that's getting uh, a little too far down the road, I think, initially. Those things will be worked out over the course of the next uh, six to eight weeks. Remember, that, Remember, we're just two weeks away from when Wimbledon, uh, just under two weeks from when Wimbledon was supposed to start. So there's still quite a bit of time. Obviously, if the virus here in the New York area, then in the country overall, uh, if there's a second wave that we've heard about or if it gets uh, uh, certainly spike in cases, in, particularly in this area, I'm in New York here where this thing started, at least in this country, um, and was the epicenter of it for a long time. If it spikes again, you know, the whole thing could be called off, I'm sure, pretty quickly. But let's assume that it doesn't, and let's assume that things go along in the positive direction that they seem to be going now. So the back and forth between the USTA 
and not only the individual players. I know the USDA has reached out to the top players and their representation, their management, but they've also had ongoing communications and calls over Zoom, et cetera, with the ATP, the men's tour, and the WTA, the women's tour. So remember, they operate separately, those tours, from the USDA. The USDA can basically do whatever they want. Okay, they can, they can run the U.S. Open however they want. They don't need to go through the players, but they made the right decision in this case to go through them and to talk to them, to talk to um, their councils, the player councils, their leadership, to figure out, okay, this is our plan. It's starting to take shape. So the immediate pushback from a lot of the players, including the top players, Djokovic, Nadal specifically, of course, they're in the limelight, they're in the spotlight, Simona Halep, Ashley Barty, top women players, <clears throat> excuse me, all of them saying, yeah, we're not really sure about this. Is this the right thing to do? Obviously, international travel is a huge part of the tennis, the global tennis tour, which is one of the complications for it. Um, we're not sure if this is going to work. We've got to stay in a hotel, maybe by JFK Airport or by, you know, outside New York City. Uh, we've got to essentially quarantine ourselves and our teams in a particular hotel, we're not allowed to go anywhere. Uh, that, I think, is not quite accurate. I think what is accurate is that the USTA is trying to get one hotel where they would give the players the option, if you're going to stay in a hotel, you've got to stay here. It's a new TWA airport hotel at JFK. It's literally 15, 20 minutes from the National Tennis Center. So the players would stay there. Now, the players, again, the top players get a lot of pushback about how who can I bring on my team? Because if you're Nadal, Federer, Serena, Halep, I mean, you, you have a coach. You might have two coaches. You've got a physio that gets your body, you know, healed, prepared. You've got a trainer that does stuff with you on your days off. Maybe some of them even have, you know, a chef or whatever. That's even going down a whole nother road. So anyway, they're used to having huge teams around them. Now, by the way, most of the players – 90%, I would say, of the players in the draw. And by the way, it's going to be the same draw size. 128 men's tournament, 128 women's tournament. I'm told that there was never, you know, I've heard rumors about maybe the men would be two out of three sets. I'm told that in the internal meetings with the USA, that never came up. They're always going to be best of five. Uh, doubles is up in the air at the moment. They may do doubles. They may not. All the other... Um, events that they do yours truly gets to sometimes lucky enough to play in the legends or seniors or old guys doubles depending on what you uh, call it of course that will be canceled the junior events will be canceled um, etc etc so I think that the tours pushed back and said listen you know the top players especially used to have in their whole entourages you know how can we work on this so uh, I believe they came to a an agreement whereby the USCA will allow the players to bring a coach and a trainer. So that's two people per player. Okay, so now when you expand that, assuming every you know player brings two people, you go up to a couple hundred more people. So then it becomes you know more complicated to quarantine and to keep everybody distance and healthy. So obviously there's no way assuming you're not going to have no fans, et cetera, that you could say you could just let the players do whatever they want, meaning if you're Serena who brings, you know, maybe 20 people, 30 people to the USO, she's certainly entitled to do that in a normal situation. Great. If 
fills up her whole box. You know, same for Nadal. He brings his whole family over, his coach, his physio, etc. But um, they can't do that this year, assuming that it's going to continue, which it is, which the New York State has said it's got to be no fans. Okay, so they can't do that. So they can't allow that to happen because then otherwise it's just too many people. So I think this was a, a solid way to go so that the players feel, okay, the, the tennis part of it and the physical part of it, I have covered. Now, the USA has also said to them, you get a hotel at the hotel we'll put you up at. We'll, we're going to commandeer the rest of the hotel so we can give you another room. You can decide how many people you want to put in that room. You could bring as many people as you want to the New York area. Okay, you could even rent a house somewhere if you want, if you want to do that, if you can afford it and you have the capability, you want to bring your family. But you have to leave them at home when you go play your matches. When you go to the U.S. Open, you can only bring your coach and your trainer. To me, that seems reasonable and fair. Okay, now I will remind those of you listening, whether you know tennis or you don't, over the course of a tennis player's career, through the juniors, even through your early days in the professional tour. You're used to playing matches throughout your whole life with basically no one watching. Okay, Even Roger Federer, when he was 14, 15 years old, was playing tennis tournaments and matches in, all over Europe, in his country, in Switzerland, wherever he was, with very limited people watching. Now, in, even when he started out on the main tour. Now, obviously, when you get to be Roger Federer or Serena, you know, you're used to playing in packed stadiums, and that's, that's awesome, and you get used to that. But tennis is one of the sports where I believe that the lack of fans isn't, shouldn't really affect the outcome of the match. I mean, tennis is just about one-on-one. There's no, you know, crowd noise pumps you up. It's a great spectacle, and people like to see that and be part of it and maybe can inspire the players to, you know, play better and play at another level. But as far as just a one-on-one aspect, I mean, if I play against a player who's going to beat me in a tournament, nine times out of ten, um, ten times out of ten, he's going to beat me in practice the same amount of time. I used to get my butt kicked by Andre Agassi year, every time I played him in a tournament. One time I beat him in a practice set, and he never forgot it, and he just beat the you-know-what out of me every other time we practiced. So it didn't really matter. I got I lucky one time in a practice set. So my point is that the idea that that's going to affect the outcome of the matches themselves I believe is not a factor whatsoever. Okay, so for the players to say, like Djokovic, who sort of suggested this in his comments, well, it wouldn't be the same. You know, I, wouldn't, I need my whole team. I mean, to me, that's, that's bull. I just don't buy that whatsoever. Now, if you want to say that they don't want to come because they're worried about, you know, their health and they're worried about getting on a plane for their family, okay, that's one thing. I mean, that you can't, and, and this time's, you can't really make that argument that you have to do it if, you, if, you, if these people really feel like There may be a person who's 80 in the world who needs the money, who makes no money. They're making no money, by the way. Tennis players don't have any guaranteed contracts unless they're top, top players getting paid by their racket companies or maybe the apparel they wear, Nike, Adidas, whatever it may be. Um, but even in those contracts, there's probably stipulations that you have to play a certain amount. Um, so the Nadals and the Serenas and the Djokovic's of the world, they're not as worried about the financial side of this because they've made you know, their money and, and they deserve to make it. But for a player who's 70 in the world, it's making a darn good living. But they live literally week to week as far as what they make. So I believe the USTA is trying to do the right thing to help the sport, to help 
the players that want to, that need to make money to help television. Obviously, people who work at ESPN or people that work for the USDA. USDA just announced earlier this week they were you know getting rid of a fifth of their um, of their employees. Not really to entirely due to the pandemic was sort of a, a, a master plan that's been in, in the works, I think, for a couple of years. But the fact is that this pushed them to do it, you know, even more quickly. So the USDA will be fine. They make a lot of money every year in the open, a ton of money. But only a third of it uh, comes from the television revenue. Again, a lot of it comes from the sponsorship. They'll get some of that money, maybe not all of it. Uh, another third, if not more, comes from hospitality and uh, ticket sales. Okay, so tennis makes a lot of its money, all the big tournaments, off the people that come through the gates every day. So they're not going to make that money. Uh, obviously, they don't want to have a lot of costs that are, are entailed to make all that happen. The people they pay to work on the grounds for those you know, couple weeks, that month leading up to it, et cetera, et cetera. But there's going to be a lot of lead up necessary, a lot of precautions um, from setting up the situation for the players, uh, making it safe. My understanding is that they will test the players regularly. What that means is up for debate as we speak. Is it once Is it once a day? Is it the day they play? Is it every third day? Is it once a week? So uh, those things will have to be determined by the health experts over the course of the next six to eight weeks. But I believe that if you're Rafael Nadal, if you're Novak Djokovic, if you're Serena Williams, if you've been given the A-OK that this is safe and that I, I don't believe would happen if it wasn't going to be safe, that you owe it to the sport that's given you so much. You've given it a lot, obviously, and you deserve it. You deserve those. You've earned those Grand Slam titles. You've earned those paydays. You've earned everything you've gotten because that's the only way you make it in tennis. You know, I always say that to, to parents and the kids, you know, tennis – um, doesn't discriminate as far as results are concerned. You're good enough, you're going to make it, okay? That's just the bottom line. Whether you come from a wealthy country, wealthy background, had all the chances in the world, had people paying your way or didn't need people paying your way, you, you either win or you lose. You know, it's not like getting a job on, um, you know, and being an actor or where it's somewhat subjective. There's nothing subjective about tennis. You either win or you lose. There's, of course, a lot of things that happen along the way. So I believe it's in those players is interest and I think they have to accept their responsibility as the best players, the top players in the world to say we're going to support this. We're going to support this this event. We're going to support this game because look, I mean plenty of people have said to me if Djokovic doesn't come, if Nadal doesn't come, it just is not the same. You're right. It wouldn't be the same. It will still be the US Open. Uh, then people tell me on Twitter, you know, I tweeted this out that I was going to do this podcast. What, you know, will they come? Will they play? The short answer is I don't know. I hope they do. Okay. Will there be an asterisk next to it? Probably even if everybody does play because of what's happened this year, just like they will be for the NBA finals or just like they will be if, if Major League Baseball gets their act together and they finally play. Any sport that takes place now during this 2020 year and what we've all had to go through, there will be an asterisk next to it. You know, the players boycotted Wimbledon at one point. You know, so the top players didn't play. So uh, the Australian Open used to be a non-factor for many years. You know, the top players didn't go and play. So those players who won those titles there, they're still Grand Slam champions. So if Nadal and Djokovic don't show up and it's, you know, Sitsipas versus team in the final, 
those guys, whoever win it, or, or if Halep doesn't show up and Serena doesn't show up and it's, uh, uh, you know, Sonia Kennan, who, who already won a major at the Australian Open, the only one played so far this year, or uh, somebody ranked 40 in the world, there's still going to be major champions, okay? So, of course, there's going to be that asterisk. And, uh, but I think it's an opportunity for tennis because tennis is such an easy sport for social distancing. As I said, I've been out teaching lessons for the last month or so. People are so happy to be out playing tennis. I've had plenty of people say they'll watch the U.S. Open on TV with no fans. I mean, this will be something so unusual, so different. So in that in and of itself will be a spectacle. It'll be up to us at ESPN um, and our production team to come up with the bells and whistles. The diff- you know, I've had people text, text me and tweet me, different camera angles. You know, do we bring in crowd noise? Do we bring in, if it, you know, no doubt, chance of, you know, Rafa, Rafa, Serena, Serena. You know, do you do all that stuff? And I, I think the opportunity is there to try different things, you know, to not make it corny, um, but to try to do it in a way that brings a little life in a different way because we're not going to have 23,000 people there in Arthur Ashe Stadium. Now, the qualifying is not going to happen. So that's ruffled a few feathers from people that say, well, you're not taking care of the players that really need it the most. You know, those players rank between 120 and 250. That's true. But the USCA has announced that it's going to put some money aside. I believe it was $2 million to give those players some money. But again, it's got to come down to you can't, you can't do everything now. You can't have a, you know, they're going to have Cincinnati, the Western and Southern Open, which is one of the big warm up tournaments. Not really a warm up tournament, it's a big Masters event. It's a huge event in its own right in the middle of the country. I've been there every year for I don't know how many years. ESPN, we cover it. Incredible event. But USDA owns the event. Okay, in partnership with, um, with the Cincinnati area and Western and Southern's a big sponsor there. That's a local uh, bank there. And it makes sense to, to move that to New York so the players can stay in that area for that extra week. They, they change the date slightly so it's closer to the start of the U.S. Open. And, you know, the players got to suck it up. Players got to suck it up a little bit, and they're not going to be able to do what they're expect, they normally do when they come to New York uh, but who is? I mean, nobody's able to do it. So you have to take it upon yourself as, as a player. Again, if you feel, if you feel uh, nervous about the travel, you have a family, whatever it may be. You know, some of these players have other health issues that maybe we don't know about. Um, but I don't think that Djokovic and Nadal do. Um, and so if they decide not to come uh, because, you know, it's – I guess for lack of a better word, maybe inconvenient. Maybe they just don't feel like totally comfortable doing it. And then a couple of weeks later, they show up in the Italian Open, which may play in Rome, um, before the French Open, which is now going to be a couple of weeks after the U.S. Open. You know, to me, that would be a lame move. That would be a move that is not, that's in the best interest of themselves, but not entirely just of tennis. I've also had this question asked to me many times. Well, what about... Uh, going from clay, a hard court U.S. Open, then going right around getting ready on clay for the French Open. Well, that's not, I don't believe, as difficult as, as some of the players make it out to be. Obviously, I'm not, I wasn't one of those top players that did well in, in all these big tournaments or any of them for that matter. But for the top players, they adjust pretty quickly. I mean, remember, not just until a couple of years ago, there was only two weeks between French Open ending and Wimbledon. 
Okay, and Rafael Nadal did pretty well on, on especially the French Open, but also a few years at Wimbledon. So did Federer, so did Djokovic, so did Serena, so did Halep. So it's possible to do it. Now there's three weeks in between, by the way. Um, so I don't think that's a huge issue, really. And remember, you get to the end of the U.S. Open, okay? You get to the final weekend, of Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, of the second week of the U.S. Open. You're talking about eight players left. At a 256, eight, you know, men and women. Okay, four semifinal seats. So the rest of those players, they could already have left town, gotten back on a plane, gone back to Europe, and start their preparations to get ready on clay. Remember the Olympics a couple of times, right in the middle between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. So that, to me, would also be a lame excuse. Now, if the player wants to make the excuse, you know what, I just I can't do it. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little edgy about getting on a plane. I think we have to accept that in this moment. Obviously, if you're Djokovic and Nadal, there's more pressure, more responsibility on them. So I think it's a bigger decision in the grand scheme of things. Obviously, the tournament wants them to be there, desperately wants them to be there, particularly without Roger Federer. But the one thing they don't have to worry about is selling tickets, okay, because they're not going to be selling any tickets. So I used to be in the USTA um, senior staff in those meetings, and they were always concerned about, who they could put in the big night matches to sell it out, you know, to sell out those big night matches, especially in week one where they're mostly route. So Serena could sell it out. You know, Djokovic couldn't sell it out until recently, by the way. Nadal, Federer, yes. Okay, Roddick in his prime. Agassi, Sampras, obviously back in the day. But I'm just talking about these top players now. So you need those players to sell those tickets and to make it 22000 on a Wednesday night in the first week instead of 18,000 or 17,000. So all those numbers add up over time over the course of a two weeks. But now that's not going to be an issue. So you're telling me the TV ratings may be affected if Nadal and Djokovic don't show up. Yeah, I would say, yes, they will be. But you could say that every year. Every time you play a Wimbledon or a U.S. Open, whatever big event it is, if you don't have Serena in the championship match, okay, uh, if you have... You know, Kennan against Halep. I mean, two great players, obviously. But is that going to move the needle from a ratings perspective like Serena? No, it's not. If you have Sitsipas, who's one of the top up-and-coming players against uh, team, that's a great match. There was a final in London last year, the ATP finals. But that's not going to move the needle on the TV ratings like Federer and Nadal would or even Nadal Djokovic at this stage. So that, to me, is an argument that's – you know, it, it, you can make that for any tournament. So, obviously, the tournament, the USDA, I hope, okay, A, that this thing happens because I've said this all along. I'd rather have a U.S. Open with no fans than no U.S. Open at all. And I believe those are the options in front of us. Now, let's make sure it can be safe. It can be healthy for everyone involved. If we can do that, let's get all the top players there. Let's get them to abide by the rules. Um, suck it up a little bit, do what's for the good of the game, for the good of the sport, and let's see what happens. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how this unfolds. Cincinnati, as we said, will be uh, one of the tournaments played. Maybe the tournament in Washington, D.C. will happen. Be kicked. That would be kind of nice if the first tournament in the U.S., official tournament, that is, were in this nation's capital after all we've seen happen uh, in this country in the last few months. So that would be certainly nice to see. Uh, I hope that this happens and goes off. I hope that things continue to get better. Thank you for listening to this version. My first ever solo podcast, 23 and a half minutes. No problem at all. 
Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Mm-hmm.